0: This episode is brought to you by Harrys.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors, plus get $5 off your order when you use the offer code BEST at checkout. Now, also before we begin, remember that Best of the Left has been nominated for a podcast award, and you can help us win by voting once each day between now and March 24th at podcastawards.com. We're up for the top prize in the People's Choice category, and our friends over at the Majority Report are up for their fourth consecutive news and politics category award. So if you support independent progressive media, set a daily reminder for yourself to vote each day for both Best of the Left and the Majority Report until voting closes. And don't forget to verify each one of your votes when they send you an email verification. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Sex Out Loud, On Being, a Minnesota trans atheist, Dan Savage, Lacey Green, and Radio Dispatch.
1: Kristen Beck is an author, activist, and veteran who served for 20 years through 13 deployments as a U.S. Navy SEAL. In her military career, she distinguished herself with Special Operations Forces at SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 5, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, also known as SEAL Team 6, and the headquarters at SOCOM. She received the Bronze Star with Valor, the Purple Heart, a Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and many other awards. She retired in 2011 with the rank of Senior Chief and continued high-level security work for the U.S. government, including the Pentagon. In 2013, she appeared on CNN with Anderson Cooper and spoke about her life as a transgender person, beginning as a boy from a Christian family all the way through her time in the SEALs. Then they made a whole documentary about her, the CNN documentary Lady Valor. It premiered in the month of September. It's been seen by over 10 million people, and you can see it now, too, because it's streaming and available to rent or buy. She works daily with the Pentagon and government officials toward toward true liberty and equality within the ranks of the Department of Defense. Welcome to Sex Out Loud, Kristen.
2: Thank you very much. That's quite, quite an introduction. <laughs> that,
1: but that's all true. That's all you, um, which is pretty remarkable. So I want, to, I want to set the stage for people who may not know who you are um, and just start with you're a distinguished Navy SEAL. You've been deployed and in combat all over the world. Um, you had what was pretty intensely macho a job. (laughs) And yet, while you're a SEAL, you were having these other feelings about who you really were. Is that true?
2: Yes, totally true. I mean, it's just one of those points to say that, you know, everyone's different. and, uh, And women are strong and powerful, and we can do pretty much anything we want. Even be a Navy SEAL.
1: Even be a Navy SEAL. And so what made you to decide to come out as a trans woman um, after all these years?
2: Well, originally I was keeping it kind of quiet, just kind of going under the radar. And I think just like everybody, we just want to have a regular, normal old life, you know, walking down the street and and just kind of do our job and, and not be center of attention. You know, especially as a Navy SEAL, I didn't really, I never wanted any of this. But then I started looking around and seeing in the transgender community and the LGBT community at large, and especially within the military, just the amount of, uh, prejudice, the, the bullying. And then you look at the stereotypes and the misinformation out there. There's just so many people in our country and I think around the world that just do not understand what transgender is. You know, as soon as you think about someone who's transgender, you think about a dude in a dress. And you start thinking about sex and fetish, and you know everything else just pops in your mind. And and really, gender and sex is a total separate thing. Uh, being transgender is not about fetish or about the clothing. It's about your identity. It's about who you are. You know, you know, way inside. You know, all the way down to like a spirit level or a soul level, whatever you want to call it. And so that bullying, that bullying, and the the amount of prejudice. I just wanted to see if I could fix some of that. There's uh, so many transgender people around our country and around a country, America, the land of the free and equality and all the other stuff we can flag wave for. And there's a transgender person killed almost every week. And uh, a girl was just murdered in a southern, uh, southern California just a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's just a, it's appalling. And so the freedom, the liberty, and that pursuit of happiness and all those other things, I can, again, wave the flag. All the things that I defended as a Navy SEAL and as someone in the military and all the stuff that I stand for, I just wasn't finding, you know, and I, I didn't find it myself in a lot of ways. And then I was looking around and I was like, there's so many people in our country that still don't have true liberty or true freedom. You know, they're all buttoned up and living in fear, and it's just wrong. And so if this is a small way I can bring some happiness to a group of people, then I really felt that was my duty. You know, and so that's that's what I'm doing. So, it's it's uh,
1: amazing that you still that that you use the word duty. Um that there there there's part of you that the seal is like in forever.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much is. And it, it would be wouldn't it be a wonderful place if if people, you know, everyone would think about that, would think about you know, democracy and they would think about, you know, life and liberty and freedom and that you have a certain amount of duty to try to uphold, uphold all these things, you know? Yeah. And then just a, just a small, small ways you can make such a huge difference. And every if everyone did that, it would just, it would be so much better, you know?
1: So I think, you know, my first thought when I heard your story was, Really like, how did your fellow SEALs react to finding out about this?
2: What was uh, that like? <laughs> That's like one of the big questions, the million dollar question. Yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, as you said, the SEALs, I mean, the super macho and, and we really, it's a bunch of Superman, you know, coming in the barbarians, you know, bulletproof. And you have to, you have to feel that way. And you have to feel invulnerable, you know, and and bulletproof because we're going in some really hard, hard places, you know, difficult, difficult situations that if you don't go in there with that attitude, then you're going in, you're going to fail. So part of that macho and Superman attitude is, you know, the masculine, strong, tough guy. And for somebody to come out totally opposite of that, it's a a lot of guys thought that was like a chink in our armor. It was a uh, it's it's it was a. Disservice, some you know it was said. I just I don't think it was. I think this kind of makes us stronger. It it shows the fact that we are human, and we can go through you know any mental issues like I was having. You know, inside of my you know inside of myself, I was feeling these things, but then on the outside, I was doing this other thing. You know, talk about the the mental anguish I would put somebody through. But doesn't that make us stronger? Doesn't it make us stronger? The fact that we could be these super Conans, but also be human beings at the same time. And, uh, so guys in the beginning, they were a little upset and they weren't really sure what was going on. And some guys were angry and some guys were very confused. So it was a mixture of attitudes. But then as guys started figuring out what I was doing, that this was about, you know, me as a person and me very, very deep inside, that they kind of started kind of nodding their head and saying, all right, we see that you are doing the same thing. You know, you're fighting for, a disenfranchised group. You're fighting for the same thing, you know, freedoms and equality. So most of the guys came around. They were like, "Okay, we understand now."
1: And what, I mean, how is it for you, for those who didn't come around, or or those who you felt close to, <clears throat> and then when you told them, turn their backs on you?
2: Yeah, there still are a few f- close friends. I would, I call them like almost close friends. They just totally turned their backs. And it hurts, it hurts a lot. And the, the biggest problem I see is that it comes down to some kind of religious thing. That uh, their religion, Christianity, you know, being Catholic or whatever, just makes them not, um, not accepted. And then they start talking about God's image and doing this and doing that. And then they start bringing up their certain, certain particular passages inside of a 2,000 year old book and uh, it just doesn't really make sense to me. You know, they they pick and choose which passages they want to read and then they forget about, you know, all the rest of them. So they can use them like a sword, you know, use the passages out of an old book, you know, the Bible, the Quran, or whatever book you want to base your uh, beliefs on. You take certain passages out of these books and then ignore the rest. And it's like using it like a knife. You know, and I, I, knives, you know, they're also used to spread butter on bread. You know, you don't have to always use a knife to kill something. Hey, people, hey, people, there's a book you really ought to read sometime. God
3: wrote it, and I quote it, anytime that its purposes suit mine. And I believe there'll come a judgment day, good Lord, where me and God and Jesus will decide. Let you into heaven or you
4: down to hell. so you might just stay on good side. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, an exploration of the meaning of gender. Joy Laden's life is a revelatory lens on this subject. She's a professor of English at Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University. That is, she is the first openly transgender employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution. Born male, joy-laden transitioned to living as a woman in her mid-40s. I want to talk about the morality question, the morality of being transgender and of this transition you made, which... Uh, oh, I don't know when this subject comes up culturally or Mm. politically or religiously. It's a big issue, but it's really pretty simply framed, right? Is this a sin? Is it an abomination? Is it contrary to scripture or tradition? The morality of what you lived through and of your identity and the shift in your identity um, is something you've given a, a huge amount of thought to, and it's very complicated. There are layers and layers of ways to think about morality. I'd like to get into that. I mean, you, um, you know, well, let me just ask that. If you think of the the morality Mm -hmm. of what you've been through, where do you begin to talk talk about that thicket?
5: You know, I'd like to add another term to the list. The secular world also provides moralizing terms for transgender people. And the the one that is most frequently heard is selfish. Um, you're selfish, you're, your gender, unlike everybody else's gender, your gender is hurting people. Hmm. You don't have to, you know, everybody else, I, I'm, I'm guessing, some people do, you know, there are gender fluid people who wake up in the morning and say, hmm, how, what gender identity shall I present this morning? But for most of us, we get up and we decide about gender expression. How will I express being a man or how will I express being a woman? But we don't think, hmm, should I be a man or a woman? it's far too central to our identities for that thought even to occur to us. And it's really the same for me. I don't have any other gender to be, but because I lived so long as a man and because everybody was perfectly happy (laughs) with that guy, um, it looks to people like a choice, and it's clearly a choice that was terrible for my family. Um, it was terrible for my wife. It broke up my marriage, broke up my children's home. It created, at the very least, confusion and um, social complications that continue to this day. And, uh, you know, it really wasn't good for anybody particularly except for me. And so if I chose to do something that was bad for everybody but me, that's an act of radical, even like sociopathic selfishness. Mm. But to me, as I say, there was no one else that I could be. It wasn't a selfish choice. It was there was the choice between you know living and dying, okay. and I did you know I'd romanticized suicide. I thought that clearly was the selfless choice because it's the choice to you know kill myself for the sake of others. But um, therapists kept arguing that children with Parents who've committed suicide are, you know, messed up in ways right. that go far beyond what happens to children when their parent transitions from one gender to another but is still there. Uh, as one therapist put it, you have to stay alive so your children can reject you. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Wow, this is the way you're talking me out of killing myself. You're, this is <laughs> tough love. And, right. but, <laughs>
4: Right, but but it's a tough. It's I mean, it's this moral position you found yourself in. You as you experienced it was tough all around, right? I mean, you're you're describing yes. that. It's you. You yes. said somewhere when you were a good man, you were a bad person. You you felt you were a liar and a coward. Um, I was, and then there. But there was this cost that you were profoundly aware of and continued to live with on the other side yes. of that.
5: I recently, um, this uh, Jewish journal, Shema, was doing an issue on covenant that came out recently. And they asked me to write about being a breaker of covenants, which I decided not to take as an insult. Um, (laughs) "Hmm, We need somebody who's really messed up here. (laughs) Um, But what I ended up learning from that was that the covenant that I'd broken was the covenant of gender. And it's a covenant in a way that I continue to break. So my gender as a man was a promise to people that the way that I was acting was who I really was. That gender was real, it was my real gender identity and it was consonant with my body. And that was a covenant that I couldn't keep because I never felt that I was the man that I was presenting myself as. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of built in, breaking that covenant. Now that I've transitioned, people feel that I'm breaking the covenant of gender in another way, and I I think that this is true. So if I present myself convincingly as female, which is something I I fear that I'm not able to do um, on the radio, your voice actually is the voice that I, I aspire to, but hormones don't change Male to female transsexual voices, mm-hmm. so uh, couldn't get there. But you know, but when people take me as authentically female, then that covenant is not being fulfilled because you know I have an X and a Y chromosome, and the, you know the, my body still, in in some ways, is the body that goes along with that. And my life, well, I had a life as a man, so I think that that's a lot of why there is a moral freight built into gender transition is because people feel like it's a promise about who you are. And some of my students at um, Stern College wrote to me and they said that they were angry at me, not because they saw me as an abomination, although I I think some students there probably do, uh, but because they felt that I was presenting myself as a man that I knew that I wasn't. I was lying to them. And Mm. like me, they saw our teacher-student interactions as kind of sacred. They're about truth. So how could I have done that with them if I knew that I wasn't being true to them?
2: I don't
0: mean to brag, but I have been shaving for more than 15 years now. I mean, of course, I sported a goatee for a few of those years, so I'll probably knock off a few experience points for that. But I think the point mostly still stands. And what I have said before, and will say again now, is that the shave I've gotten from the blades at Harry's.com kick the crap out of anything I've tried before. They started me out with a little starter kit, just you know, so I can try it out and get a sense of what they're all about. And now I am a full blown customer. Their razor handles are high quality and sturdy. Their blades are made with some sort of witchcraft that makes them way better and way cheaper than anything I've seen before. And they've won me over with their shaving gels and aftershave, which is my girlfriend's favorite part because she loves the smell. And I've even tried their lip balm, which turned out to be one of the best I've used. And trust me, I wouldn't bother going out of my way to mention it if it weren't true. I mean, who would have thought that a shaving company would even bother with lip balm, much less knock it out of the park? So anyways, go to harrys.com, get a starter kit of your own, and start getting a better shave while saving money right now. And to help you with your first order, use the offer code BEST to save $5 off your purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter the coupon code BEST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today.
6: Lingerie saved my life. No, seriously, it really did. I think about lingerie a lot. Of all the items of clothing I've purchased since coming out as trans, lingerie and other intimate items have probably been my favorite purchases. I don't need to go into detail about what I've purchased or what my favorite items are right now or what I'm wearing, because it's irrelevant to this discussion. What I do want to discuss, though, is why. Julie, my wife and I, had this discussion probably the first week after I came out to her. Obviously, she had questions about me being trans, and while it's not my job to educate the entire cisgender population about what it means for me to be a trans woman, I thought it was my responsibility to at least educate my spouse on what it meant for me, on who I was. And she had, and still has, a right to honesty from her spouse. One of the most important things for everyone to know about trans people is that we are, in every way, as diverse as cisgendered men and women, and that brings me back to intimate items. There is so much more to being a woman than simply putting on a bra and some frilly undies. Our clothing does not define our gender or who we are. However, while it is socially acceptable for women to wear just about anything they choose, there are certain articles of clothing that are socially forbidden for men to wear or even possess lest their manhood, their gender, their personal safety, and their morality be called into question. Lingerie is just such an item. And perhaps the fact that lingerie is so intimately associated with being a woman is one reason I've always felt a strong desire to wear it. When I say always, I mean that in the most literal sense. I have no memory of ever not wishing to wear women's clothing, and some of my earliest memories are of wondering why I wasn't like other girls. For many years, I was forced to nick secret knickers, and until I became religious, I felt no shame in my secret stash. This mismatch of colors, fabrics, styles, and sizes was my nighttime heaven. When I was very young, in the middle of the night, I would sneak into the safest and most private place in the whole house. The bathroom. There, I would take off my pajamas and dig through the dirty clothes hamper, looking for the gently used clothing of my slightly older sister. Apparently, tucking is an instinct that comes in tandem to women born with a penis, as I spent many hours of my young life just staring at myself in the mirror, wishing, hoping, and wondering. These are memories I cherish as I struggle with my self-acceptance. If you, dear listener, are happy with the body you were born with, and you want to better understand the pain and sadness many trans men and women feel, I encourage you to read or watch the first Harry Potter book or movie. It may help you to more fully understand the idea of spending nights in front of a mirror in a mixture of happiness and sadness at what is and what might have been. As I grew older, like everyone else in my life, my body began to change and the secondary sexual characteristics of a male body began to emerge. This was not a happy period of my life. Thankfully, by this time of my childhood, I had my own room and had a little more privacy. I spent my teenage years living in an undiagnosed depression. Being the heavy, nerdy, shy kid wasn't helpful in overcoming the depression. However, I've always attributed most of my shyness and inability to form close friendships with being alone in the world. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized I wasn't alone in the world. I wasn't the only person in the world who was born looking like a boy, but who was really a girl. What got me through this was lingerie. Bras panties, nightgowns, and anything else I could steal without being caught or suspected. Nearly every night in the safety of my bedroom, I could dress. I could even fall asleep dressed in ill-fitting and very mismatched articles designed for bodies other than mine. I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but in looking back at those teenage years, I firmly believe that lingerie saved my life. It gave me an outlet, a way to feel more right with myself, and a way to pretend I had never suffered the effects of testosterone poisoning. Obviously today... I no longer live in hiding. Today, I know I'm not alone. I'm beginning to fill my online social circles with trans people, and I'm making strides into filling my real-life social circles in the same manner. Today, I don't have to hide. Today, I can be open about enjoying being dressed in whatever way I choose. Today, however, that same lingerie still plays the same role in keeping my depression at bay. I no longer wake up in the middle of the night to spend hours in front of the mirror in silent melancholy, wearing stolen clothing. But even today, that clothing still helps me cope. I can wake up in the morning wearing pajamas, nightgowns, or whatever that fit both my size and my identified gender. I can wear bra and undies that match, that I was able to purchase, at a store, off the rack, in front of people, even people with children, and not feel any shame. If I'm feeling especially gender dysphoric, I can open a drawer, a drawer that's not hidden, and take out any number of clothing items designed to be hyperfeminine, Accentuating body parts I only have if I successfully avoid mirrors. If necessary, I can even slip in a pair of prosthetic breasts and feel more like myself, more like who I am. Feeling like myself its really important. It's why I believe lingerie saved my life. Throughout my entire life, lingerie was there in one form or another, allowing some fraction of me to be myself and to explore who I was. Whether it is one of my earliest memories of standing in front of a bathroom mirror, alone at night, wearing that sky-blue pleated nightgown decorated with orange and yellow flowers, or this very morning waking up to an underwire poking me in the ribs. They're a pleasant and comforting memory, a way for me to remember who I really am, or to quote someone much more eloquent than I, the great Laura Jane Grace. I should have been a mother. I should have been a wife. I should have been living in a different life. But for today, right now I'm here, stuck with the body I have. So I'll keep something frilly, something silky, something hyper feminine, something to make me feel pretty when I encounter the difficult days people and decisions ahead.
7: A few years ago in, uh, spring of 2011, I was invited to the White House Conference on Bullying, where the President spoke and the First Lady spoke, uh, and, uh, you know, there's a large gathering. There are hundreds of us in the East Room listening to the remarks of the President and the First Lady uh, about bullying. And this was in the wake of, uh, September 2010, all those suicides, uh, among queer youth and the, you know, our creation of the It Gets Better Project, uh, Mine and Terry's, uh, and everyone who participated. The It Gets Better Project is a, collective creation of all participants, not just us. And I'm sitting there in the East Room, listening to the president and speaker after speaker, beginning with the president, and the first lady kept saying, they rose each one and said, this is something that parents, preachers, and teachers need to work on the bullying parents, parents, preachers, teachers, and parents, particularly parents, parents, parents need to speak up, need to do something about bullying. And I'm sitting there dying inside, actually sitting next to Al Franken, dying inside and elbowing him in the ribs. And and I keep saying, parents are often the first and worst bullies. And I, if I'd been a younger man, maybe, if I had still been ACT UP era Dan Savage, I might have jumped up and interrupted the president. But I waited politely for the breakout session uh, where I was on a small panel with, a, I think, Arnie Duncan, And I blew up. And it was like, parents, we have to start talking about the fact that parents are often the worst and most destructive bullies when it comes to queer kids. Somebody is bullied at school because of his race or her religion, they go home to parents almost invariably of the same race, same religion, who they can turn to for support, who they can expect as a matter of course their support, if if their passive support, just they exist and there they are and they made it and I'll make it, or their active support. If you're being bullied at school because of your race or your religion, the odds that your parents will blow into that school and start kicking down doors and screaming and yelling are really high. But the queer kid, the lesbian kid, the gay kid, the bi kid, the transgender kid, all too often goes home to parents who are also bullying them. And this is not just anecdotal. This is borne out by the stats. 40% of homeless youth, homeless young adults, homeless high school and middle school age kids are queer kids who were thrown out of the house after they came out or were outed to their families or their families simply suspected that they might be queer. 40% queer kids make up depending on whose estimates you believe, far less than 10% or 5% or even 3% of the population, but 40% of the homeless youth. study by the Williams Institute found that families that are hostile, a queer kid with hostile parents, not beating them up, not throwing them out, merely hostile, that kid is at eight times greater risk of suicide. The average queer kid at four times greater risk of suicide. Family hostility doubles that already quadrupled risk of suicide. Eight times greater risk of suicide. Parents are often, for queer kids, the worst and most destructive bullies. And we had a sad and tragic example of that last week, December 28th, when Leela Elcorn stepped in front of a truck on a highway and committed suicide. Elcorn wrote an absolutely devastating suicide note that appeared on her Tumblr after her suicide. And it's really hard to read, uh, and it's really damning. And the people it damns the most are her own parents. She came out to them as transgender. And they refused to support her. And they did, they did what I like to call everything wrong. They did everything religious conservative groups and organizations, leaders, quote unquote, like Tony Perkins, urged the parents of queer kids to do. They refused to accept her. They bullied her. They shoved her into a reparative therapy program at her church. In her suicide note, Elkhorn says that her mother told her that she would never be a girl and that God doesn't make mistakes. And they pulled her out of school when, and they pulled her out of school after she came out as gay because she wanted to come out as something and wasn't yet ready to come out as trans for peers, came out as gay. They pulled her out of school, began to homeschool her, cut her off from social media, took her phone away from her, and isolated her in her home for months. Since age four, Leela Elcorn had sensed that there was not something wrong, but something up with her, that she didn't quite understand herself. She couldn't put it into words. And then, and I'm reading from her suicide note. When I was 14, I learned what transgender meant and cried of happiness. After 10 years of confusion, I finally understood who I was. I immediately told my mom, and she reacted extremely negatively, telling me that it was a phase, that I would never truly be a girl, that God doesn't make mistakes, and that I am wrong. If you are reading this, parents, please don't tell this to your kids. Even if you are Christian or against transgender people, don't ever say that to someone, especially your kid. That won't do anything but make them hate themselves. That's exactly what it did to me. My mom, Lila continues, started taking me to a therapist, but would only take me to Christian therapists, who are all very biased. So I never actually got the therapy I needed to cure me of my depression. I only got more Christians telling me that I was selfish and wrong and that I should look to God for help. Leela Elkhorn ends her suicide note with this. The only way I will rest in peace is if one day transgender people aren't treated the way I was. They're treated like humans, with valid feelings and human rights. Gender needs to be taught about in schools. The earlier, the better. My death needs to mean something. My death needs to be counted in the number of transgender people who commit suicide this year. I want someone to look at that number and say, that's fucked up and fix it. Fix society, please. Goodbye, Leela Elcorn. Leela Elcorn signed her suicide note, Leela Josh Elcorn with Josh struck out. Crossed out. A line through it. Leela Elcorn's mother has gone on television and continued to refer to her daughter as her son, continued to refer to Leela as Josh, continued to misgender her, continued to deny Leela in death what she denied her, what her family denied her in life, which was just some fucking respect for who she was and who she knew herself to be. And, and here's this is what keeps hanging me up. You know, when you abuse your kids, your kids are taken from you, and... What we have here is a case where a trans kid, another queer kid, a trans kid, was abused by their family, abused to death by the first, worst, and often most destructive bullies in a queer kid's life, their own parents. At some point, we are going to have to start to recognize and respond to this kind of abuse, this kind of isolation, even if it has a religious justification, as abuse, We know this. We know these things. We know that family rejection doubles that already quadrupled risk of suicide. We know that rejecting your queer kids, forcing them into reparative therapy, which also increases a queer person's risk for suicide, is quackery, is abuse. Every mainstream mental health organization, APA, everybody else recognizes that reparative therapy is damaging and destructive. We know this. At a certain point, we have to start treating people, treating parents who do these sorts of things to their queer children as abusers. And it is a crime to abuse your child. The Christian therapists who practice their reparative quackery bullshit on Leela to such destructive ends also need to be held accountable. They should know better. They're quote unquote professionals and what they're doing puts the lives of young queer kids in jeopardy. We pull kids out of homes that are filthy. The authorities will sweep in and take kids out of homes when they don't think the parents are good enough at keeping the house clean. That Just general filth and uncleanliness can make a home unsafe for children. Children are taken out of those homes. Sometimes the parents are charged with child endangerment, neglect. If a child is injured or killed under those circumstances, manslaughter, reckless endangerment. Those charges can be brought because people were doing what they knew or should have known to be dangerous. What they knew or should have known could harm their child or end their child's life. And we've reached a stage with LGBT youth that we now know what can harm or end that child's life. And it is exactly what Leela Alcorn's parents were doing to her. It is exactly what Leela Alcorn's Christian therapists were doing to her. They were recklessly endangering her life by bullying her, by refusing to accept her, by refusing to listen to her and offer her the support, to give her the support and understanding and love to which she was entitled. I jumped on Twitter as the Leela Elcorn story was blowing up to say that I thought, and I still think, that Leela Elcorn's parents should be charged, should be prosecuted. Leela Elcorn's therapists should be identified and charged malpractice at the very least and prosecuted. And this must be addressed. It risks incentivizing suicide that we people who support queer kids, we don't want to communicate to them that we will pay attention when you harm yourself, only when you harm yourself or the quickest and easiest way to get revenge upon your family or the people tormenting you is to kill yourself. But In this instance, perhaps we should make an exception and really do something because it has to be understood by other parents that their religious freedom does not entitle them to torture their queer kids to death any more than your religious freedom entitles you to deny your child access to medical care. We don't let people do that. We prosecute people who deny their children medical care and pray over them faith healing style and watch them die. How is this any different? They were praying over this vulnerable, depressed, transgender child. Forcing her to pray. Dragging her to Christian therapists. Attempting to faith heal her. And she's dead. If it were leukemia, we would prosecute her parents. I'm not comparing being transgendered to having cancer or leukemia. But it seems to me that if we can prosecute parents for denying their child the health care that they need when it's cancer. We can prosecute parents for denying their child the health care that they need when they're transgender. And Leela Elkhorn needed health care. She didn't need Christian therapists. She didn't need to be isolated by her family when she was already in a depressed state. She needed access to mental health services and the interventions that can save a young trans person's life, and she was denied those things because Jesus because somebody loved the idea of their sex-obsessed gender-policing God more than they loved their own child. And that should be a crime. Okay, before we get to the calls, this week's calls and this week's guests, for any listeners out there, young listeners, listeners of any age who are trans, who may be feeling in despair, I want you to know about Trans Lifeline. It is a hotline staffed by transgender people for transgendered people. And their numbers in the U.S., 877-565-8860, and in Canada, 877-330-6366. Trans Lifeline.
8: In 2014, Leila Alcorn, who was a 17-year-old transgender girl from Ohio, committed suicide. In her suicide note, she talked about how she was subjected to conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is pretty straightforward. It claims to convert homosexual people into straight or transgender people into cisgender. You may be asking yourself, how exactly does that happen? The method is to repair the masculinity or femininity of the patient. A handbook on this method reads, quote, he should, one, participate in sports activities, two, avoid activities considered of interest to homosexuals, such as art museums, operas, and symphonies, three, avoid women unless it's for romantic contact, and so on until the person is eventually repaired by getting married and having children. This is a little weird. They seem to be confusing sexual orientation with gender expression. Just because you've shamed someone out of going to the opera or wearing pink doesn't mean they no longer like the D. This method was written by Joseph Nicolosi, who founded NARTH. It's the leading organization that's peddling pseudoscience and anti-gay, anti-trans lies to mostly Christian consumers. He's what I like to call a throwback Thursday from hell. Speaking of hell, spiritual condemnation is another method. Leela's therapist told her that she was selfish and wrong and needed to turn to God. Some ministries even advise parents that they disown their children if they come out as gay or trans.
0: So you isolate them. You don't have a meal with them.
9: You separate yourself from them, you turn them over to Satan.
8: Yeah. Arguably the most disturbing method of all is aversion treatment. This involves causing pain to change someone's psychological response. Take a look.
0: Physical therapy was my hands being um, tied down and blocks of ice being placed on my hands. Then pictures of men holding hands would be shown to me. So that way I would associate the concept of the pain of ice with a man touching me. It worked really, really, really well. My dad could barely even hug me anymore when I would scream out in pain. Then we went into heat. So um, coils would be wrapped around my hands and you'd be able to turn the heat on or off. We then went into the um, the month of hell. The month of hell consisted of tiny needles being stuck into my fingers, um, and then uh, pictures of explicit acts between men would be shown and I'd be electrocuted.
8: Uh, why? This therapy is legal in 48 states. Legal, even as it's been rejected by every single major body of mental health experts in the country. Even more, the research that its supporters have clung on to has been debunked like a million times. The lead researcher, Robert Spitzer, came forward and said, "Yes, yeah, so that study was really flawed. A couple years ago, Exodus International closed their doors. They finally realized what they were actually doing and expressed deep regret for what they had done to people. The APA found that patients were leaving conversions therapy with some glorious side effects. Increased rates of depression, suicidal thoughts and attempts, hyper-awareness of obedience to gender norms, social isolation, poor self-esteem. It's so weird. It's almost like telling people to hate themselves could actually hurt them. Gender dysphoria or sexual identity issues can be helpful, but they should be a place of retreat, helping people to cope with society, to feel better in their own skin. When you peel back the layers, it becomes pretty clear what's going on. The real illness is us. The social illness that aggressively asserts that being straight and cis are normal while everyone else is abnormal and needs help. Today, human sexuality experts know that gender and sexual orientation exist on a broad spectrum. There's no normal, there's only more common. Failure to accept this simple fact has serious consequences. So here's my question. How many LGBT kids have to take their lives before we finally put our foot down? How many more Leela Alcorns will find themselves alone and broken on the side of the road, unable to take it anymore? If we're serious about equality and treating each other with humanity, then conversion therapy, and especially conversion therapy forced on minors, needs to stop. Please consider joining me and over 300,000 others who have signed a White House petition to enact Leela's Law. This law seeks to ban using conversion therapy on minors.
0: Since turning 30 a couple of years ago, I've been thinking and reading a lot about the big picture of saving for the future, for retirement, investing, all that stuff. And my takeaway from everything I've learned goes like this. Spend less, save more. Trying to beat the stock market is bullshit. Basically, you can invest huge amounts of time, energy, and money into trying to beat the system by picking individual stocks, but statistically, you are much better off just spreading your money across the entire stock market, focus on keeping the fees you pay as low as possible, and then just sit back and wait. That's where an automated investment service like Wealthfront comes in. By using investment software rather than humans, Wealthfront takes the emotion, the possible conflicts of interest, and expensive commissions out of the equation entirely, which means their fees are among the lowest. In the industry, which means you keep more of your savings, which is the whole point. To see for yourself, visit wealthfront.com/left, and they'll manage your first $10,000 for absolutely free. That's wealthfront.com slash left. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA, and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risk, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, gender neutral bathrooms. Sometimes the answer to a problem is so simple, cheap, and easy to lobby for, it's a wonder it hasn't already been handled. This show has talked about violence perpetrated against trans people due to overt bigotry, misogyny, and discrimination. Because of that and other factors, trans people are more likely to commit and attempt suicide than any other group. So, the information for the Trans Lifeline, 877 565 8860, a suicide hotline staffed by trans people for trans people, is in the segment notes. But what we don't talk about much is the day to day hassles and microaggressions that feed the culture of violence against trans people. Parker Malloy, a Chicago-based trans woman writer, described what an afternoon of errands used to be like for her in an interview with The Chicagoist. Quote, One thing that a lot of transgender people struggle with is, well, for me, there was a period in my life where I had started taking hormones, and if you saw me in public, you'd be like, I have no clue what you're going for here. Man? Woman? What? I kind of hit this weird androgynous phase. It was to the point where if I walked into the men's room, I'd get a lot of weird looks. And if I went into the women's restroom, I'd get a lot of weird looks. And so rather than continuing to do that before one of the weird looks became a scream or became violent, I just decided to use the bathroom at home, which is super inconvenient and hard. I would sit there and schedule my errands for making sure I wasn't away from the house for more than a few hours, which is really sad that that has to be an issue, but it's an issue, unquote. The cities of Austin, Philadelphia, Washington DC, and West Hollywood have all taken a simple step to alleviate both the stress of those situations and the potential for violence by enacting ordinances to make single-use bathrooms gender neutral. The fix is cheap, usually 20 to 50 bucks at a Home Depot for supplies to change the signs, and most patrons don't really notice the difference. West Hollywood business owners have even discovered a handy side effect, shorter lines because anyone can use any of their bathrooms. Now, Kentucky State Senator C.B. Embry Jr. is pushing legislation that would bar transgender students from using the locker rooms and bathrooms that match their identities. And he's not alone. The easiest way to prevent new discriminatory legislation is to create a cascade of proactive rights-affirming legislation. And the good news is that you have loads of power at the local level where gender-neutral ordinances are being introduced. Go to your next city council meeting, call your alderman or your city council member, and connect with your local LG. LGBTQ group to lobby for change where you live. If cities and states can go smoke-free in public places for health and safety despite the tobacco and business lobbies, swapping out a couple of signs should be an easy ask. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing discrimination and violence against trans people matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about gender neutral bathrooms via social media so that others in your network can speak out too.
3: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bow, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now?
10: Because that's how we make a
2: difference in this fickle world of change.
11: First of all, the title, which, you know, writers don't always write their own titles. But I also, I should say that not it, it's this New Yorker piece called What is a Woman? The Dispute Between Radical Feminism and Transgenderism. It's a long piece at the, not super long, but it's a decently long piece at the New Yorker. Uh, and there is also, I listened to the, um, New Yorker podcast with the author Michelle Goldberg on it as well. Uh, and, and the title is, What is a Woman? Um, and, and Goldberg on that podcast also says, like, my piece is essentially exploring the question, What is a woman?
3: Uh huh.
11: Already there is a kind of, Suggest, especially when the them that set up the dispute between radical feminism and transgenderism. I've never heard transgenderism. Uh, I
3: mean, whenever I've heard it, it's been people who uh, using it pejoratively and and just like uh, saying that that trans people don't really exist. Right. Like, yeah. I've I've whenever I've come across it, it's been as a sort of like pathologizing like, medicalizing, mm-hmm. and, and not not in a, like, healthcare kind of medicalizing, but in a, like, a homosexualism
11: uh-huh, right. kind
3: of, a, <laughs> you know, half a century ago kind of a thing. It,
11: it makes it sound just, and this is just my initial reaction, but, like, reading that if I had never, like, it makes it sound as if it's, like, a school of thought, as opposed to transgender being an identity. Mm-hmm. Um So the things that I'm going to say that that are critical of of what Goldberg says in this text may be also supplemented by things that she said in this uh, New Yorker um, podcast as well.
3: And I have not yet listened to the podcast, but I did read the piece. Mm
11: -hmm. And, you know, so... so De- decently long time listeners will will uh probably be familiar with we've had a little bit of this conversation on the show before largely actually because we weren't familiar with tra- trans exclusionary radical feminists maybe this was like a year or so ago mm-hmm. um, and we talked I, I i especially talked a lot about um like gender as a social construct um which is a kind of you know a way of thinking about gender as not like a super as, as not like a set in stone type of thing. Not and,
3: like biologically determinant. Yeah,
11: exactly. And, uh, a, a couple of our trans listeners, you know, kind of wrote in and, and, uh, shared their thoughts about why, about the limits of saying gender is a social construct or saying gender is only a social construct, um, cause that can be kind of erasing to, uh, to trans people who are like, uh, <laughs> you know, if your social construct doesn't apply to me, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, uh, one of our listeners at least, if not more, said, you know, I was really... She said it took me a really long time to, to be okay with, like, feminism because I associated feminism with this radical feminism. Um, and, and. The, so,
3: so called radical feminism. So called
11: radical feminism, yeah. And, and the radical feminism way of thinking it basically takes gender as a, it takes gender as a social construct, which, which when I say it, I more mean, yeah, like that, 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 the, that binaries are constructed and gender expectations are enforced on people. But what, uh, radical feminists mean when they say gender as a social construct is, Basically, what they mean by or what they their their take on gender is cis women who are assigned female at birth uh, and uh, and you know are have experiences as being raised and coded as uh, and identified as female have a unique experience as women that trans women do not have and cannot have, I guess. So, therefore, trans women are not women the same way that cis women are, and, therefore, that leads to them, to to these uh, radical feminists, basically trans-exclusionary radical feminists being like, you can't stay with us in women's-only spaces, you can't come to our women's-only festivals, you can't... um, and some go as, to, as far as to say you can't identify as a woman. You are enacting violence on cis women by identifying as a woman. These things that are like extremely, extremely aggressive and and violent, as you said, violent, very violent language.
3: And the the idea behind behind that being that anyone born, you know, quote unquote male, to sort of to to, to adopt their you know right. to adopt their phrasing, anyone born male is male and is afforded all of the privileges of maleness in a patriarchal society, and that um, if you are a trans man, you are attempting to gain access to that male privilege, thereby uh, further subjugating women. And if you are a trans woman, you cannot um you you cannot shake your male privilege and any attempt to is disingenuous and is a, is in in that way is a, is uh, also a, a further subjugation of women
11: right so it's it's like this this kind of complete opposite day in in turfland where uh, trans people are the ones with the most power <laughs> who are right. who are marginalizing they are the marginalizing force
3: right they're the ones setting the agenda
11: yeah uh, I should say they are the oppressing force coming in and marginalizing people, right? Where, which is, I say it's opposite day because, of course, trans people uh, face a tremendous amount of discrimination and violence and oppression and are incredibly marginalized uh, in basically every aspect of society. And,
3: and Goldberg does include some of those statistics, uh, which is more than, say, the Dr. V story did. Yes. So, I mean, good on her to include some of the statistics uh as far as violence that that trans um people face, but she doesn't she doesn't grapple with any of the relation between violence that trans people face and the kind of worldview that turfs espouse
11: right and and yeah, and I think what's a big uh failing of the article is you know you can say reporting is an endorsement fine um but but to 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 you know, Goldberg really goes through these schools of thought, which, which, as identified by Gold, Goldberg herself, are, are like outdated slash dated, if we want to use a less judgy word than outdated, schools of thought. They are coming from the 70s, the 80s, and the language I think is often coming from then. And not that, you know, not that that is what, necess- that, that's not what makes them bad. What makes them bad is their, Is the, the, I think the, the big, a big shortcoming of Goldberg's is to, is to not explore or at least not address the ways that this way of thinking, this, this casting trans women as somehow not women, that that is, that is the step towards violence against trans women that happens all the time, right? Even if it's not, even if we're not saying like these academics, who think this way, they don't commit violence on trans women, so why are we criticizing them? That way of thinking, you know, dehumanizing trans women, denying their womanhood, denying their, their existence basically by saying this is just a pathology, they're not, that's not real. Um, that is basically, I think that is the, the basis for, for so much violence against trans people. Real right. physical, uh, violence, as well as the violence of denying them uh, shelters, denying them, you know, violent language and so forth.
3: Right, and and I think that when Janet Mock titles her book "Redefining Realness," that's at least as I as I understand it, is a very clear pushback towards this idea of real women read cis women and not real women read trans women mm-hmm. or trans men and 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 i think that that uh that you're absolutely right that the idea of making of 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 establishing and policing an idea of real women based on sort of biological determinism is absolutely the it's it's one of many steps towards violence towards uh, trans women. And it's I mean, in many ways it's the basis of trans panic defense in in court. Absolutely. It's that that there is this thing called real women. Absolutely. And that doesn't include trans women.
11: Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up Janet Mott because I hadn't quite thought when we had our, our book club, uh, discussion about her recently, I hadn't, it hadn't quite become so clear to me that one of the many incredible things that, that Mock's book does is completely dismantle this idea that like trans women who were assigned male at birth and who, you know, were coded as male in their childhood or whatever grew up with this male privilege, this like completely, uh-huh. you know, free, uh, unchecked male privilege the way that cis uh, boys do because it, it's just, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because, it, it, the, and, and again, that way of thinking frames all this as just like that, that being trans is like a, a choice or being trans is like a, is, is not real. Um, that, you know, again, that, that, that these, that trans women aren't really women, trans girls aren't really girls. So that, you know, to say, oh, well, uh a a trans woman you know who uh was assigned male at birth like had all the good stuff about being a boy as a kid and then Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's like no what what you what you get when you read mock's book is like what she had was the extremely difficult life of being assigned male while being a a girl right like that's not privilege that's not male privilege
9: Hey, Jay, it's Wade. to keep this short, but uh, <laughs> when you're talking about libertarians, it can be kind of hard to do. You know, I'm, I'm on the Internet a lot, and I like to go on forums and, and debate and argue. And the most popular people you meet on the Internet are usually libertarians. They're really out there. And the thing about it is, is that sometimes libertarians, they, they like to claim things that that they really shouldn't be allowed to claim, I think. Like, they say, well, the government is, is too intrusive in our lives, and we look at that as a libertarian ideology, right? A uh, plank in their platform. But that's really not, because liberals and conservatives have been saying that for years. Or, the government is involved in too many wars, or the U.S. is involved in too many wars. Well, liberals have been saying that forever. They can't claim that. That's not exclusive to the libertarian philosophy, that, that's, that's bullshit. And so really though, we're, we're, where they differ from liberals and conservatives is where they want to take the country. They want to go back to 1776, basically. Okay? And if you ever talk to a libertarian, they'll really bring up these these archaic figures in our history, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they'll bring these guys up like crazy, and they know a lot about them. I mean, just very, very intimate details about these men. And the thing about it is, is if you, if you took one of those men and you brought them in today's world, they wouldn't have the goddamn clue how to cover them because they wouldn't even recognize a single thing in whatever room they were in. Well, that's electricity. That's a pen. That's a pencil. They wouldn't recognize any of that stuff. And if you took Barack Obama and put him in 1776, he wouldn't have a goddamn idea how to govern. You govern within the time that you were in. Discussing these men as though their ideas and their writings have tons of, of relevancy in today's world is insane. And that's where libertarians tend to go. They tend to just really want to go back to that form of, of, of government and, and the country is not the same in, 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 in almost any way. So, the idea of, of, of libertarians is is basically a free, everybody doing whatever they want, basically. Very few laws, very few regulations, letting the marketplace decide everything. That may have worked fine in 1776, but laws are passed usually, in response to something, okay, so if no company on earth had ever polluted a river, we wouldn't have an EPA, it was a response to irresponsible acts, irresponsible acts that fucked with lots and lots of people, that's why we have laws in this country, okay, we didn't just, if you go back and you pull the federal law book from 1800, I'm sure it's very small. Uh, But again, it it builds up over time. Everything calcifies over time. So taking the world back, it's impossible. And I don't understand their philosophy at all. I don't understand why they think that if you take away all the safety nets, that somehow the world will be better off. Claiming that taxes are oppressive. Man, I'll take you to places in the world where you'll see real oppression and it has nothing to do with taxes. I mean, they're missing the picture, or excuse me, the point of civilization, society. We better ourselves. That's kind of the point of it. At least this is to me. Anyway, that's my thoughts on Libertown. I'm trying to keep it short. I can go on forever. But anyway, Jay, it was a great show. I appreciate it.
10: Hello, Jay. I go by Landon, although the name on my membership is different. Pesky real-life names. I recently listened to the episode on libertarianism. I myself used to be a libertarian ten years ago. Now I am firmly in the liberal camp. Because of my past experience, I can explain why libertarians have a hard time understanding the obvious advantages that liberalism offers, even to businesses. To do this, I am going to use something from my chosen profession of software engineering. It's called the Blub Paradox. That's spelled B-L-U-B. If you'd like to read the article that coined the phrase, it's called Beating the Averages by Paul Graham. Let me give some quick background. Back in the old days of computing, the only way to program a computer was using machine language. Machine language is composed of ones and zeros. Programming in it is miserable, so we came up with a better way. We invented programming languages. These are languages that are spoken by both humans and computers. This lets us tell a computer what to do in a format that is much more natural to human thinking. As time went on, we started to develop more languages with more features. They contained more expressions, and more vocabulary, and better syntax to help us describe how to do more complicated things. In short, we developed better and more powerful languages. If you view programming languages as tools, then the only languages you should consider using are the most powerful languages. Sure, a less powerful programming language might run a little faster, but you just can't get nearly as much done with it. With computers constantly improving in running speed, the ability of people to get things done is far more important than saving a few computational cycles. It's the obvious choice when looking at tools, and that's the rub. Languages aren't just tools. Languages are habits of mind. Once you've been speaking with your computer language for a certain number of years, you start thinking in that language. You get used to the vocabulary and syntax of that language. So, when you look at a new language with an expanded vocabulary and syntax, you don't see why that's a good thing. You're used to thinking with the smaller vocabulary and solving the problems, but that smaller vocabulary solves. You don't see how that larger vocabulary lets you solve bigger problems. And that's the Blub Paradox. Blub is a fictional programming language. It was made up to avoid stepping on toes because everyone loves their favorite programming language. And this fictional language is mid-range in the power spectrum. When the blunt programmer looks at a language like COBOL, he knows he's looking down the power spectrum. How can you get anything done in COBOL, he says. It doesn't even have Feature X, where Feature X is your blub feature of choice. The thing is, when he's looking up the power spectrum, He doesn't like what he sees. There are all these weird hoops to jump through and overdone architecture to wade through before he can do any real programming, in quotation marks. But when somebody from a more powerful language than Blub is looking down, they don't see weird hoops and overdone infrastructure. They see feature Y, which is a feature that Blub doesn't have. How can you get anything done in blub, they say? It doesn't even have feature Y. The blub paradox extends to politics. Libertarians and conservatives aren't just tools for running an economy and society. They are ideologies. They are habits of thought. And just like programming languages, you can't tell when you are looking up the power spectrum. Libertarians and Conservatives know when they're looking down the power spectrum. They look at third world countries where the government is hopelessly corrupt and say, how can you get products to market there? You can't even properly enforce contracts. But when they look at liberalism, they don't like it. There are all these weird government regulation hoops to jump through and overdone safety net socialism, in quotes, to wade through before you can do real business. In quotes. But as a liberal, I don't see weird government regulation hoops. I see necessary features. How can you possibly get products to market as a libertarian? You don't have single-payer health care, you don't have public education, you don't even properly regulate your corporations. Do you seriously think you can do business like that? But then the libertarian will respond with how all these newfangled features like single-payer healthcare cost money. It's not as efficient. But that's the same as saying that it's best to use a low-powered programming language because it runs slightly faster. Who cares? Much like how computers continually get faster, technology is continually producing more resources for society to draw on. Focusing only on money at the expense of features is folly. What is a small decrease in taxes next to our businesses not having to provide health insurance to their employees? That would be a huge competitive advantage, especially for small businesses. You know, the small businesses that libertarians love to start. Why on earth would you want to deny yourself such an obvious competitive advantage? My fellow liberals, we have the better system, but just saying it isn't enough. We have to explain the habits of thought, too. We have to get libertarians thinking in liberalism. And that is my spiel. I hope you all enjoyed. I
0: am Landed, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klabusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Again, quick reminder that we're up for a podcast award. This is very exciting. We could win the top award this year. So go to podcastawards.com. Vote for Best of the Left in the People's Choice category. Majority Report in the News and Politics category. Support your independent progressive media. Uh, Dan Savage, who's a contributor that we heard on today's show, he is up for, uh, I I believe, the Mature category. Uh, Our friends over at Throwing Shade, I think, are in the LGBT category. Lots of excellent uh, choices to vote for. So as I say, uh, set a reminder for yourself. You can vote every single day. It's all about uh, listener involvement. So if you vote every day, that's how we're going to pull this thing off. Thanks to everyone who's already been voting, and thanks in advance to everyone who uh, starts voting or continues voting throughout the month. Now, I, I don't have a whole lot to add today, but I have to say that uh, Landon definitely reminded me of one of my favorite Douglas Adams quotes. Uh, Douglas Adams, uh, a late author, sort of uh, science fiction guy, uh, thought about the future and technology a lot, and this is what he had to say about uh, the way people perceive the world, essentially. He says, number one, everything that's already in the world when you're born is just normal. Number two, anything that gets invented between then and before you turn 30 is incredibly exciting and creative, and with any luck, you can make a career out of it. And number three, anything that gets invented after you're 30 is against the natural order of things and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it until it's been around for about 10 years when it gradually turns out to be all right, really. So whether we're talking about recognizing the full equality of trans folk or debating which economic and political systems would work best for society, as uh, both Wade and Landon pointed out in the voicemails today, When you hear someone espousing the idea that we should live by a system that is hundreds, if not thousands of years old, I would recommend pondering first if perhaps they're just suffering from a case of arrest development. Now, before I go, just another quick thanks to Wealthfront for supporting the show. They're the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission free. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit Wealthfront.com left to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Now, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a and shame
5: How we get so trained